1: Andy Jacob here with the Dot .com Magazine Entrepreneur Spotlight Series. We have a very interesting show today. You definitely want to stay tuned for the entire show. I've been waiting to get Mr. Keith Stark on the show for a number of months. He is the founder and CEO of Consortium CRE. And we're talking today about the dramatic change in consumer behavior, especially as it relates to commercial property. Keith is one of the nationwide leaders in commercial real estate. He's been in the field for a number of years. I feel so blessed to have him on the show. Keith, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come on the show and talk about commercial real estate and real estate uh, and retail real estate as part of this Entrepreneur
0: Spotlight Series. It's great to be here, Andy. Uh, We're in a very dynamic time for the retail, real estate, restaurant, hospitality industry.
1: Keith, it's unbelievable. I'm so blessed to have you on the show. You're a leader, I have so many questions. Let's get right to it before we talk about sort of the entire dramatic change that's happened in the retail and commercial real estate business through COVID. Let's pull the lens back a little bit, just at the beginning, Keith, and let's tell everybody from 30,000 feet what Consortium CRE is all about.
0: Well, really, Consortium CRE acts as a consultant and advisor to a variety of customers and clientele, reaching uh, nationally from uh, large retail developers and owners like Store Capital, uh, Seritage Growth Properties, some of the nation's largest property owners, as well as uh, we work the other side of the coin as well, which is we do tenant representations for firm uh, representation for firms as small as Little Caesars who take a very small footprint in an existing center. We work with AT&T Prime Communications, the largest authorized reseller of uh, AT&T products in the United States to large format users like Camping World and Home Depot and Walmart, other users that are expanding in the Midwest. And really we're driven by their needs and we we react and work as both a liaison and uh, advisor in areas where, regional areas where we know our areas and trade areas as well as we go out and take their expansion programs and roll their concepts out depending upon where they are in their growth phase.
1: Well, Keith, this is absolutely incredible. You've become a major force in the industry. Your entire team is filled up with seasoned professionals. You really are leading the way. Let's talk a little bit about the the dramatic change that's happened in commercial real estate over the past you know, one to two years, especially since the pandemic started last year. Let's talk about what sort of is the is the flavor of what's going on in the in the commercial real estate industry right now.
0: Well, really, we are uh, reacting constantly and evolving constantly based upon consumer needs, consumer demands, and consumer habits. Uh, we don't do things of our own directional necessary direction or. Retailers' specific direction, we're reacting to consumer needs, demands, and requests and their habits. And, you know, I'm a product of the 60s when the regional mall was brand new on the horizon. And uh, the regional mall was based upon consumer habits then. The consumer, the the regional mall and retailers are constantly adapting adapting to the change of consumers. And basically, the, the consumer of 2020. Uh, doesn't, uh, has different habits of a consumer of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, or 90s. Uh, We have full employment now where everyone works. We have two income household earning scenarios where both parties of the household work. They don't have as much time to shop as they once did. And now we have things influencing the market like that last mile delivery, which is a great phrase everyone used to like, uh, you know, loves to use as well as those people that are providing that service, such as the Amazons of the world and uh, redistribution. Retail is all about distribution of goods and services. And the distribution of goods and services is changing. And we're seeing the shrinkage of the regional mall as people have less and less time to go to the regional mall. We see goods and services delivered to the consumer's door, whether it be groceries, uh, pet food, Pet supplies or dinner. (laughs) So uh, we have everything changing from the food kitchen, which is a new concept. And, you know, if you aren't familiar with it, if you're not from a major metro area, you may not even know what one is yet. But it's the next big thing. Food kitchens are going to be providing dinners to those who get home and don't necessarily want to cook or, you know, they've been at work all day. And so they call the local food kitchen and the food kitchen may have eight, 10 brands that they provide and they'll, they'll prepare it on site and they're get it to your door within the hour. In some cases, all the way to uh, last mile delivery is really what it's all about, regardless of what you're delivering. Retail has always been distribution of getting, bulk breaking or bulk making, Uh, the the large DCs, the distribution centers uh, brought in semi loads. They shipped out parcel deliveries to individual stores all over a region. And then those stores delivered it, or the, the consumers actually went to the store to pick up the product. The big change has been that last mile delivery. Consumers are no longer going to the retailers in the volume that they once did, so the retailers and many of the goods and services providers are, are uh, the internet has allowed them to order online, pay online, and then the goods be directly delivered to their house. So the retail big boxes and uh, even some of the mid-sized boxes are now, and always have been distribution centers, uh, but they're getting it to that last mile now and actually delivering it to the consumer where before the consumer and this consumer can still pick it up at the store level, but in many cases uh, and in increasing levels, the products being delivered directly to the consumer's home. Keith, that makes all the sense in the world. You know, when I was
1: growing up and when I was a kid I'm probably dating myself right now, but you know, the mall by our, by our home was like the place we went my parents would take me and sometimes my friends, we'd pack in the car, we'd go to the mall, my parents would go do their thing. The kids would walk around the mall and socialize and cause some trouble, honestly. And <laughs> and, uh, and then we would walk up to the mall, you know, by ourselves as we got older. And that mall became sort of the center of where we socialized. And today, it seems like the kids are socializing online. So why don't, maybe you can just talk about that change of the way that the malls used to be from a psychographic and demographic profile versus what's going on today in these malls that you're talking about?
0: Well, the average uh, consumer used to visit a regional mall and spend two to three hours there, shop multiple stores and do shopping uh, seven days a week. Um, typically, that was a female shopper who was going to the mall uh, in the uh, the, the early definition of of family, so to speak, Um, you know, there was a one wage earner, one stay at home, uh, and typically the the, the female stayed at home and and she did the shopping for the family as well as all the other things related to the family. Uh, As we've, the decline in uh, birth rate uh, in the amount of children and the fact that we now have a lot of single family households because now the female may be the wage earner in the household or single on her own uh, in her own home providing everything for the home, uh, time is less. Now we have a male shopper who is a different, different demographic, psychographic, uh, and and requires maybe different needs, maybe not, But and we also have the female shopper, but we also have those teen shoppers that may have a credit card, maybe do shopping online, So really, it's in a dynamic time where retail's trying to figure out how to address the consumer, which is now a broad range of individuals, uh, without even going into age, uh, gender, or uh, ethnic origin, or anything else. Uh, Basically, the the group, the, the, the playing field has gotten very broad. So it's become very challenging for the retailers to figure out how to address the consumers. And the one common denominator is the internet. Uh, With the advent of the internet, the expansion of the internet, everyone, you know, I I think it's in the 80s or 90 percentile level of people that have access to the internet. Um, And a smartphone, oh my gosh, what is that? Uh, (laughs) You know, we we go, I think the evolution of the smartphone is a very good cross reverence of the evolution of the internet and the changes occurring, you can trace all of those three common denominators to dramatic change in retailing and distribution of goods and services. Uh, Now you can go on a smartphone where even as 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, a phone still hung on the wall and had a cord attached to it. Now you can carry it around in your pocket. It has more storage than most desktop computers. And if you want uh, any goods or services, you can likely contract for those, pay for those, and even arrange for delivery of that to your home via your smartphone. So retail has always been um, very prominent on the landscape in terms of bricks and mortar and the facilities got bigger. The, The evolution of the regional mall kind of broke up into when you started having specialty office supply stores like Staples and Office Depot and things of that nature. So that segment left. Then you started having uh, specialty shoe stores, specialty apparel stores, specialty electronic stores, specialty furniture stores. So the department store has been being chipped away at for decades now. And so the department store is what probably most people equate with the demise of many of the C B regional malls is that they see a big anchor go dark. Well, that department store was made up of five to seven departments. Literally, that's why they called it a department store because of all the different things from beauty supplies to shoes, to apparel, to even automotive. And basically as the uh, Sears, JCPenney used to have auto centers as a part of their stores. And so now we're seeing all those different departments become highly specialized, go freestanding, and therefore the almost implosion of the regional department stores with the demise of JCPenney, Sears, Macy's, many of these department stores uh, are unable to compete anymore against all the competition that has gone specialty and Specialized to the extent that they have their own existing stores outside the malls now, and locating closer to the consumer, making it more convenient for them to get their goods and services. That makes all the sense in the world to make it more convenient for the
1: for the consumers, Keith. And obviously, at Consortium CRE, you know you become a major force. You've got many seasoned professionals that work with you. Um, you have significant regional marketplace knowledge. And you have extensive retail and developer relationships that span many, many decades. And you've really been able to develop innovative and comprehensive plans for your clients. Let's talk a little bit about the types of clients that come to you, because you have so many of the sort of name brand clients that you work with. What other types of clients come to you and they say, hey, Keith, we want to bring Consortium CRA on board, you know, we need this, or we need that, or we need to look for this type of space. What are the types of clients that call you, uh, you know, and, and
0: request your services right now? Well, the most recent example is store capital out of Arizona, which is a multi-billion dollar holder of real estate throughout the United States. Uh, They have situations where due to what's changing in the retail landscape out there, we had a chain, that is called Stock and Field that uh, started opening 27 stores from about 80 to 140,000 square feet throughout five states in the Midwest. Uh, They purchased their assets from Big R, another regional chain, uh, Midwest-based chain that uh, operates in the farm and home field. And Tools and accessories, uh, caters to, you know, almost like a home improvement hardware store, plus apparel and other things, and and predominantly secondary markets. They aren't often in the big metro areas, they're out in the the secondary markets that are lesser served by the majors. So um, recent, when the stock and field acquisition and uh, following expansion, uh, rebranding of the 27 stores, to include a distribution center, uh, was poorly timed in that uh, the, it's about two years old. And so they were opening stores going into the pandemic. Uh, and so the pandemic, as we know, the government shutdowns shut down a lot of the large format retailers. Well, this was a chain that was expanding into this shutdown. And so for a year after of their two years, they weren't open for a year. Then when they were open, they were shut down for a year. So they filed bankruptcy recently and the uh, stores were all closed at the end of uh, April, uh, actually March 30th, I believe all the stores closed. And then subsequently um, the RP Lumber Company out of Southern Illinois purchased all their assets except for one store. So we were hanging in the wings uh, to advise store capital based in in Arizona, what to do with any excess property that might come available as a result. They held in their portfolio all these assets. It was about 1.7 million square feet of real estate. Um, subsequently, the RP Lumber Company purchased all but 82,000 square feet. that was uh, one store that had not yet opened under the Stock and Field brand in South Bend, Indiana. So now we're... Working as an advisor to uh, store capital, what to do with that asset. They own the asset. We've now got it available for sale or lease. We've gone and taken over the management of the property, the leasing, and the potential sale of the property. And moving forward, that's the service we provide for store capital, whether it be a freestanding restaurant, a freestanding 80,000 to 140,000 square foot store. Whatever, if it's some excess land that they need to get rid of as a result of one of their acquisitions, et cetera. Um, another large national company that we service is Seritage Growth Properties based in New York. And we act as an advisor in the Midwest for them and specifically in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Seritage uh, Growth Properties purchased most of the Sears stores that are attached to malls. Now for five years, we've been working with Seritage Growth. They tore down an existing store in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana that was attached to Glenbrook Square, which is a super regional mall uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, We came on board with Seritage and started working with them uh, upon their acquisition of the Sears assets, worked with them through the demolition of the existing store and uh, now we're redeveloping that property where there's been a Chick-fil-A, uh, Portillo's, uh, BJ's restaurant added on out parcels. And we're in the, the the new, the old building's been torn down. The phase one building has been erected and is substantially pre-leased. And we're starting to work on phase two of, uh, I think it's approximately 15 acres of development at this super regional site at Coldwater and Coliseum Boulevard in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And Fort Wayne services a three state areas in Northeast Indiana. And so therefore you get Michiganers, Southern Michigan residents, uh, Northwest Ohio, and uh, we're darn near on, we're in Indiana, but we definitely uh, have a foot in uh, Ohio as well as Michigan. And consumers come from those areas because again, it's a super regional shopping site, meaning there's not another regional, super regional shopping area for 100 plus miles in any direction. The closest one would probably be Indianapolis. Then you have Toledo, and Grand Rapids, and of course, uh, South Bend or Chicago. Well, that's interesting. And
1: what would even be more interesting is that we have Michigan football fans and Ohio State football fans get together to watch the big game every year at one of the locations. Keith, you know, you mentioned about food kitchens and This is something that maybe some of the viewers don't know about. And maybe you could just talk about that and what's happening with the food kitchens and what's happening all around this this, uh, commercial field with regard to bigger, bigger organizations doing things like the food kitchens are doing for multiple brands out of one location.
0: Well, we have consulted with, uh, like we've done firehouse subs in two states for 12 years, I think, Uh, when they initially came into Indiana, we took them on as a client and we do uh, downstate Illinois and uh, Indiana for the franchisees. It's uh, all their corporate work is with franchisees and we consult with franchisees. We work with groups like the one from uh, McCormick and Schmick. Um, We've dealt with checkers rallies. We've had uh, a long list of restaurant clients, but there's no more dynamic category in real estate or consumer behavior than the changes that leading up to uh, COVID-19. The, the changes were already occurring in terms of movement, the drive-up, uh, walk-up, uh, which is not a new concept, but it's a new concept in the sense that people are using it once again. Um, we've had people's time, consumers' time is very limited. And you might even say it's shrinking rather than expanding in these times. So leading up to uh, March of 2020, restaurants were already adapting to food court, food kitchens, all kinds of different concepts to where consumers could spend less time. If they can go to one area and have 10 different choices it's kind of like bringing food courts to the neighborhood um, because basically there's less food being prepared in the home today than ever before. Uh, there was a, I used to work for a company called Super Value Foods and 30 years ago, they were saying that you know 85% of food purchases were consumed in the grocery store environment and then prepared in the home. Now that's almost flip-flop. And grocery stores have become purveyors of prepared food. Increasingly, they're value-adding by preparing food to where it can be just warmed up or meal preparation. So this is the entire category from grocery stores to restaurants to this new guy or new group on the scene uh, called a food kitchen. And basically, it's uh, kind of the evolution of food trucks into Food kitchens now are branding with concepts uh, and preparing their branded food in their kitchens and then delivering it to the consumers. Well, in order to b- deliver a quality product and deliver it uh, warm, hot, whatever it needs to be, it needs to be in close proximity to the population within 20-minute drive time, in many cases. So what food kitchens are going in, they're going in and, and, and securing warehouse space, office space. They don't really care because they're not hanging out their shingles, so to speak, and saying, here we are. What they're doing is they have a significant online presence, and they're saying, come to our website, order one of 10 brands, and we can deliver it via uh, one of the branded names of delivery uh Grubhub, Uber—they may have their own proprietary delivery service. Uh, all kinds of different means, but the bottom line is, you can be at work or just leaving work or just getting home, or you can order a day before or a week before and say, "I want this meal delivered to this location at this time." Prepay for it with a credit card, credit card, and you know, seven o'clock on a Tuesday night, your meal arrives at your house, and. Uh, the, there may be a delivery service or added fees associated to it, but basically it's all about convenience and lack of consumer's time, which is change of consumer behavior, which is what is driving the changes in restaurant, retail, and hospitality industry. We're just reacting. That is so interesting, Keith. I have
1: so many questions for you, and I know you've only been able to slice out a certain amount of time, but when I go to my app, and I go to the Grubhub or, or Postmates or Uber Eats, and I, and I order from a restaurant, the fact of it is, is that that might not even really be a brick and mortar restaurant. It could be one of these places that's inside exactly. one of these food kitchens. And all they're doing is producing food inside one of these large kitchens and they're delivering it through the app or through their branded website. And that's, I think what you're saying,
0: right? Yeah, exactly. Typically we would carve out trade areas at busy intersections, and that's where we would put a firehouse subs or, or a regional location where a, a, a Bricks wood-fired pizza, which we do their work in Indiana. They would go to specific, they would look for different site characteristics, but it was usually based upon density of population and traffic. Well, these food kitchens, you can order the food, like you say, it may be a branded name, but it's not coming from the restaurant. It's coming from a food kitchen that's in a downtown area. When I say downtown, you know, Indianapolis is made up of a nine-county area. There's going to be no less than 10 food kitchens in Indianapolis, one for every 120,000 of the dominant population areas, and they're going to be able to get your food to you in 20 to 30 minutes. And that's redefining how food is purchased and how it's obtained by, because of the consumer's demands, it could be delivered to an office park. Uh, we're staying over late tonight and we need our, our staff here. So we're gonna order in food. So we uh, get on the app and uh, have our local food kitchen and you can order three or four different companies just from that app. And you don't know if it's gonna come from the, 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 the restaurant or if it'll come from a food kitchen and uh, depending upon demand, because the food concepts are being stressed from the sense that they're setting up different lines for different types of ordering. And that may take place from inside dining, like you see behind me here today. It may be coming through the drive-through, which many businesses are now approaching 50% of the revenue coming from from the drive-through. Some are experiencing as much as 70%, especially since the pandemic. A lot of inside dining has been closed. People have been really pushed to delivery. They've been pushed to, and these are freestanding fixed restaurants are now figuring out how to do the delivery themselves, almost to being food kitchen level themselves, and figuring out that it's not all about just in-house dining, that um, some of the concepts are looking at pushing, uh, or not pushing, but uh, receiving traffic through the various uh conduits of online ordering, uh, in-house dining, and the drive through And that is really a challenge because you used to have one person at a cash register. Now, how do you manage all that? You know, you've got the phone ringing or the app saying this is coming in. You've got somebody in the drive through and somebody just walked in the front door. So the challenges of, of figuring all this out is what's pushing Things to a food kitchen. It takes the app ordering process out of the restaurant, puts it in a food kitchen. They may still derive the revenue, but it's allowing them to go off site and supply demand where the consumer is indifferent to where it comes from. They just want their sandwich, their potato chips, and their drink.
1: <laughs> it's a whole different world out there. Hopefully, they're going to throw some vegetables in there as well, Keith. You know, when I'm thinking about what you mentioned with regard to the last mile delivery i had a recent conversation with with a very interesting person that understands logistics and we started talking about amazon and what what he shared with me it was his belief that for a company like amazon the most expensive point-to-point part of the entire delivery process is that last mile to get it from wherever it's going the last mile to the home, that's the most expensive part of the delivery process. But when you talk about the last mile delivery, let's talk about what that means, because I find that whole subject very fascinating. And I've been wanting to ask you this, Keith, I know I'm keeping you a little bit over, I could talk commercial real estate for three hours (laughs) or 30 days, and I know I'm keeping you over, but what do you mean by the last mile? Let's get into that just a little
0: bit so the uh, people watching the show understand what you mean by that. Well, there's, to refer back to your statement there, food is getting healthier and there's a whole lot more options out there, but it also has a very short life in terms of when that can be delivered and stay in fresh and good order. But uh, So there's the delivery services and all the other different things that are popping up to to provide that service. Um, But last mile delivery, you know, retail has always been about bulk making and bulk breaking. We have a distribution network in the United States that takes semi-loads of stuff, whether it be bananas or iPhones or 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 dresses or jeans, and they manufacture a facility, truckloads of them are sent to a distribution center. It's a regional distribution center. That distribution breaks up those into pallet loads or whatever loads the store level are ordering, and then a truck goes out with a whole truckload of merchandise selected specifically for that store to replenish merchandise that has been purchased or new merchandise to add to the offering selection. selection. Um, the consumer then went to the store, made their purchase, and based upon those purchases, merchandise was replenished or new merchandise was brought in, et cetera. Well, that is the last mile, the, the point at which the product is – in a form that it can be delivered to the consumer and how it's delivered to the consumer. And yes, it is the most expensive because you can take a whole truckload of we'll say jeans. It's really not that expensive per mile per item. You can get thousands of pairs of jeans in one, one 53 foot semi. Uh, so the, the the transportation cost from the manufacturer to that distribution center you know, is, pennies per item. Well, then once it leaves that, the consumer has to drive to their store to pick up that one pair of jeans. The added cost to pick up that one pair of jeans is in that last mile. And it's, it's put on that particular item for delivery. And so basically what we have a dichotomy where the retail used to rely upon the consumer to absorb that expense. Now, what we're doing is we're trying to deliver that last mile. Amazons of the world and these large internet companies have an advantage because they were all they were doing was supplying delivery for that last mile, in many cases. But as retail has evolved and adjusted, so has the internet, so have the internet-based companies, and they're having to buy trucks, fleets of trucks. They're having to buy buy facilities and staff those facilities and hold inventory in those facilities so that they can make the last mile delivery. And I'm specifically referring to Amazon in this case, which is building facilities all over the United States. So the, the playing field was disadvantaged to the retailer for several years. That playing field is now actually being leveled because Amazon and many of these companies are having to get in the facilities business, they're having to get in the fleet vehicle business, and they're having to staff all those facilities and all those vehicles. So the U.S. Postal Service, UPS and FedEx are no longer able to handle the volume, or at least Amazon thinks they can handle it at a lesser price, because again, this is the price component that is costly. Getting that item from where it sets as inventory to the user's hands where they can consume it or use it is the most expensive for that item. That layer is the layer that is changing, then, that consumer behavior is changing a lot of different industries, not just the retail industry, but distribution centers. I think they're building distrib- million square foot malls, regional malls a regional mall or super regional malls, a million, a million and a half square feet. They're building single distribution facilities, Amazon is, and other companies, because that's the type of volume that are coming out of these facilities. now, And it's causing a shrinkage. Uh, It's not gonna eliminate retail, bricks and mortar retail, it sure is making an impact on it. And retail is having to adapt and adjust as they constantly have had to, to these new changes in consumers and that last mile delivery because the consumer just doesn't have the time. The convenience is, they'd re, it's a cost in terms of all kinds of different uh, expenses, human capital, time, monetary, and otherwise the consumer just have it delivered to the door and they're willing to pay extra for that if they can. But the, Amazon can compete because they don't, location to them, they don't have to have prime real estate. They don't have to have huge parking lots. They don't have to be open to the public. Uh, They don't have to keep certain hours. They work 24 hours a day, seven days a week and reshift. And, uh, you know, there's uh, FedEx and UPS have world ports here. The largest FedEx facility in the United States, if it isn't now, it will be soon, is in Indianapolis, Indiana, because of the proximity to consumers. We're in the middle of the United States population-wise. UPS Port is in Louisville, Kentucky. There's a reason because you're in the middle of the population and distribution is everything. The expense is that last mile, getting it to all those individual consumers and delivering the product in like new form and fresh in in the event of food. Wow, that's unbelievable. So it's all about that last mile and distribution
1: centers and retail establish- establishments have had to adjust like they always have had to adjust. Keith, I know I've kept you over, but I'd like to end the show today talking about entrepreneurship because we have entrepreneurs that watch the show. And obviously when they hear someone like you be so eloquent and so intensely smart with your particular space, I call you the Tony Stark of Keith Stark (laughs) is the Tony Stark of the exclusive uh, commercial property and retail property space. Some entrepreneurs, obviously, they hit roadblocks and all entrepreneurs do, as we know. And I want you to address um, for the younger entrepreneurs watching the show, how should they approach hitting a roadblock? How should they approach hitting a stumble in the road? How should they approach something that doesn't go right, or something that takes a bad turn for them. How do great entrepreneurs approach this and what's your recommendation for those entrepreneurs
0: that maybe are fighting against an obstacle that they need to get through? Well, there's never been any more opportunity for people entering the workforce than there have been today. That's a misconception that there's not opportunity. There's so much opportunity. Uh, When I went to school and, college, whether it be college or high school, uh, our counselors, you know, you, which of the three jobs would you like to pursue uh, as you approach your uh, adulthood, I guess I would say. Um, we were never really uh, made aware of all the different opportunities and all the segments that exist out there. I, I kind of got into, I actually went into life sciences in college and I was going to be a, a microbiologist. Uh, When I started out in school, it was only through experience that I kind of figured out that I had this passion for. I went into retail for a short period of time uh, where I worked as an operations manager and I got the full training of retail and how it works. And I worked six days a week, 12 hours a day for five years uh, in that. And then I, I realized that there is a big change occurring and that the, the, re, the real estate aspect, everyone uses real estate. There's, you know, I mean, you just walk out your back door and there's real estate. Your back door is real estate. So I changed my major. I went into urban economics and real estate and uh, met the challenges of being, I, my, my, my father isn't in urban economics, real estate. My mother was a computer programmer. So I was breaking new ground in terms of the direction that I was heading. And I moved to Indianapolis from central Illinois, where I had no connections. I had no base to start off of or use as a springboard. So you just have to be persistent, tenacious, and passionate, hopefully. I really enjoy what I do, and I work hard at it because I do enjoy what I do. And that's one of the things that you can bring. Do something you enjoy and do it well. I'm not the first person that said that, and I sure hope I'm not the last. Because if you don't enjoy something, it will be way too much like work. And hopefully you find something that you're passionate about, and you're constantly striving to take it to the next level and figure it out. You have to be a bulldozer. You move if you look at your career, I used to run track. I was never a sprinter. I was never fast out of the gate and how quick I could get to the finish line. I ran the mile, the two mile relay, and it wasn't about how fast you went. It was about getting to the finish line, part of it. And um, most of your competition would drop out along the way. If you run your own race, don't look sideways. Look forward constantly. Sometimes reflect on where you've been, but just keep going and see where it takes you. You don't know where it's going to take you. There's no crystal ball. And the, the beautiful thing about retail and real estate is it's constantly evolving. We're constantly adapting to consumer behavior and changing. I call that job security, and it served me well for 30 years. I mean, I've oh, been I love adapting it. to it.
1: I love it, Keith. It's unbelievable to have you on the show. I've waited so long to get you on the Entrepreneur Spotlight Series. You really are a major force in the industry. Uh, your entire team at Consortium CRE are, are seasoned professionals. You really have significant marketplace knowledge. It came through on the interview today, and I know we could keep talking for hours and hours and hours. And uh, And I wanted to thank you so much. And first of all, Thank you for staying over on the show today because this is very important. What's happening in real estate is just so critical to our infrastructure and for large companies and small companies to have a handle and be able to reach out to somebody like you with your expertise is truly remarkable to get that seasoned look at what's going on and, and you're somewhat of a zycus in this space as well, you know in your mind based on your experience, what potentially could happen in the future, Keith. And again, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the Entrepreneur Spotlight Show. What
0: you're doing at Consortium CRE is absolutely remarkable. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, it's been a great experience and uh, I'm always happy to share. Uh, often, uh, I think I have forgot more than I know at any given time at this point in my career. <laughs>